Welcome to Practical Christian Living. Not only are we told that we're to love our wives and love our spouses and love the brethren in the church, but we're told that we're to love our enemies. Love those who persecute you and pray for them. We're to be those who walk in love. That shows that we genuinely serve Him and we genuinely follow Him. What is the one characteristic that people should see in us as Christians? Love, love, love. Love for the brethren and love for our enemies and compassion for others, including strangers and prisoners and those who have things a lot rougher than we do. With more on brotherly love when it's easy and especially when it isn't, Here's Robert Furrow with a study out of Hebrews 13, verses 5 through 7. Father, we do again come before you and call out upon your name. We pray that you would fill us with your spirit. We pray that you would fill this place with your spirit. That you would take your word and move it into our hearts and where our hearts may be hard, break them up to receive your word. Where they might be shallow, Lord, bring the, the, take the rocks out, the rocky ground, and turn it into good ground. And where there may be the cares and the worries of this world, the weeds that just choke out the word, let us really trust you and be concerned about your kingdom rather than the things that are in our lives. That we might be really receptive to receiving your word that is so powerful and life-changing. And we thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Last week, we started to look at Hebrews chapter 13. And we saw that it now turns to practicality, what I called shoe leather theology. We move from doctrine or theology into the practice of the Christian life. And we called our study last week, Character Development. We talked about the importance of developing Christian character in standing for Christ. Now, there's six points to this study, and I only got through three of them last week. And I was late getting through all three of them, right? And uh, when Paul, or whoever the author of Hebrews is, when he wrote this, he gave us these six points of what the Christian life is like. He gave them in quick, rapid succession. And I wanted the study to be that way, except I talked too long and wasn't able to do it. So the title of our message today is Continued Character Development. So we're continuing along that line of thought. We pointed out last week that every great novel has this in common. They develop characters well, character development. It can have the greatest story in the world, but if you don't know the people that are in the book, if you don't like the people in the book, if you don't want good things to happen to the people that you like or bad things to happen to the people you don't like, then you're going to lose interest in the book, right? It can have the greatest story in the world and you will close its covers because if you don't care about the people, you just don't care. You become indifferent about it. Well, the Bible says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 3, that you are a letter ministered to by us and written by the finger of God, not on tablets of stone, but on a heart of flesh. God has written on you and you are a letter that he sends out to a perishing world. And if you don't have a character that is developed, if you don't live like a Christian, then it will mean nothing to the world. 
God writes on you and sends you out as salt of the earth and he sends you out as light of the world. And if salt loses its savor, it's good for nothing but to be trampled underfoot. And in reality, how many Christians have lost their savoriness or no longer have the flavor or the aroma of Christ that is in their lives? If you go on a diet and you're sold out about the diet, you're really excited about it, and you go to people and say, I've been on this diet. You really should go on this diet. It is a really good diet. But you weigh 300 pounds. Then no one's going to listen to you. They're going to go, I'm glad you like that diet, but I don't think I want to try it. If you used to weigh 300 pounds and now you weigh 175 pounds, then they're going to listen to you because they see that it's worked out in your life. And so if you say, I'm a Christian and I love Jesus, but I'm not living for him, they're not going to listen to what you say. If you're drinking and cussing and you, there is no discernible difference between you and the world. There, there was actually a few years ago this form of evangelism called friendship evangelism where they tried to get people to go out in the world and act like the world. And then the, the world would say this. Here's their thinking. The world would say, well, they're just like me. I think I'll become a Christian. But here's the problem. If you're just like them, then they don't need to become a Christian because you're already like them. They are like you without having to become a Christian, so they're not going to become a Christian. But if they see something different in you, if they see Christ in you, the hope of glory, and they see that you don't have to get your buzz on to be happy, if they see that you're not out there telling dirty jokes and that there is some distinctives in your life that make you stand out, then they're going to be interested. Just like reading a good novel, you're interested in the people that are there. So when they see that your life counts and matters and that it's made a difference, then they're going to be drawn to Christ. Well, that's what these six things are. And I have called these things Christian character developments. Last week, we saw three of them. And I want to quickly review them. And I do mean quickly, okay? Because I want to spend time on the next three. But the first that we found is that Christians... One part of their character, if you're going to stand up for Christ and live for him, part of the character that has to be developed in you is love. You have got to walk in love. When you think of Jesus, you think of someone who loved the people that he came to minister to. He was compassionate to the poor. He was compassionate to the tax collectors, those who work in the IRS. He was compassionate towards the woman caught in the act of adultery. That's who we're supposed to be like. And so the first thing we're told in verse 1 of chapter 13 in Hebrews is let brotherly love continue. That's one of our characters. If we're Christians and we're really living for Jesus, then what people ought to say about us is they love people. They really do care about people. Not only are we told that we're to love our wives and love our spouses and love the brethren in the church, but we're told that we're to love our enemies. Love those who persecute you and pray for them. We're to be those who walk in love. That shows that we genuinely serve him and we genuinely follow him. I've called this Christian development aspect faithful in friendship. That is Christians. Now, the thing is, I don't have to spend a lot of time talking to you guys about the importance of love in the Christian life. Because if you're born again, if you've made a commitment to Christ, then God has put in your heart that desire to walk in love. And so as the word of God begins to give this direction, it resonates with your heart. And I love that about the word of God and about Christians. 
God places it within you. There's a desire in you to be a certain way. And when you hear it in the word of God, there's a real power and a connection between it. And so we're to be faithful in friendship. The second thing that it says in verses two and three is that we're to be compassionate to others. Look at what it says. Verse two, do not forget to entertain strangers for by doing so, some have unwittingly entertained angels. Remember the prisoners as if chained with them, those who are mistreated, since you yourself are in the body also. If you are a Christian and you're really walking the way that Christ wants you to walk, then you're compassionate to others. You care about strangers that are struggling. You care about those people that are in prison. You care about people that live in impoverished areas, villages that don't have clean water, where people and children are hungry. And I gotta say to you, honestly, the church does a good job in this area If you were to take away every Christian organization that reaches out to make a difference to those who are hurting, if you took away every medical mission work that's being done, every hospital that has been opened in the name of Christ, every mission field and every ministry that reaches out in compassion to the world, this world would be a lot darker place. And I got to say as well that you guys as a church have done a great job with this as well. When we've come to you guys and said, listen, we want to come alongside of people in medical crisis, which was our latest one. We had one particular gal that we were wanting to come alongside and help. And you know that by the time that that project was said and done, we, we received seven, over $75,000 to help people who were in medical crisis. That's just a response when you hear of someone who has a problem and a heart that says, I want to help. When we raised money to put wells in villages in India, because there were these wells where these women were walking for miles to get water that was dirty anyway and brought it back and their families were getting sick and children were dying because the cities didn't have fresh water and we wanted to plant wells in five churches. We raised enough money to put wells in 20 churches. And not only that, but to support missionaries that would go around in these cities where these wells were planted because fresh water in these villages now causes more people to congregate in that area. And so I don't need to tell you guys, hey, you need to be compassionate because you already are. Again, I think that's something Christ has placed in you. But we can always get better, can't we? We can always say, Lord, open up doors. Give me opportunities. Let me really demonstrate the love that I have for you by really being compassionate towards strangers, by being helpful to those who are in prison. Lord, open up doors and show us how we can do this. The third thing that he says is in verse four, marriage is honorable among all and the marriage bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. The third characteristic that we have as Christians that we need to have is that marriage is an honorable thing and that your marriage in particular, not just marriages in the church in general, but your marriage can stand out as a beacon that shines for Christ. The truth is in America, one out of every two marriages end up in divorce. And unfortunately, within the church, one out of every two marriages ends up in divorce. That tells us that as Christians, we aren't always taking Christ into the most intimate parts of our lives. But God can shine sometimes the brightest through a marriage that is standing strong for Jesus. Every marriage has rocky times, right? Is there any marriage that doesn't? Every marriage has to work through difficulties. When I did marriage counseling, I I don't do it anymore. But back when the church began, I'd get together with all the couples that got married at the church. And I would go through a, I think it was a six week program with them. One night was dedicated to conflict resolution. It's all we talked about. We talked about what was good to do in the middle of an argument, what was bad to do. 
Throwing things at your spouse is bad, for example. Saying things like, my mother was right, is bad in the midst of a conflict. We would cover these kind of things. So one of the things that I would do is I would say, tell me about your last argument. These are engaged couples. Tell me about your last argument. Then they would tell me what their argument was. Then I would find out what he did and what she did, what his perspective was, what her perspective was, what he did that she didn't like and what she did that he didn't like. And so we could kind of bounce off of that to talk about how to properly resolve conflict instead of just pushing it off. For example, some guys just run. As soon as there's conflict, he turns and he runs away from it and nothing ever gets resolved, right? So we would talk about the importance of go ahead, deal with it, get it out, find out what it is, deal with those conflicts. Well, I had one particular couple that came in and they were really the overly gooey kind of couple. You guys know what I'm talking about? They were like looking in each other's eyes while I was there. I was feeling like, you want me to go? You guys can just hang out together and stare at one another. They were all holding the hand and rubbing it all while they were talking with me. And, and uh, it's the kind of person that when you do the actual wedding and you say to them, you may now kiss the bride, that they start to kiss and then you feel awkward and uncomfortable <laughs> because it's like they're eating a chicken leg. And you go, you know, this is really awkward. Uh, you guys have all night, okay? A, a nice, classy kiss would be good, okay, when you're getting married. So this couple, they're coming in. They're all gooey and affectionate. And um, I said, well, tell me about your last argument. And they said, argument? We don't have arguments. We, we love each other. <laughs> to which I now realized they had no clue of who each other was. Because you don't know your spouse until the ugly comes out. <laughs> and if you haven't seen that before you're married, the first time you see it in marriage, you're like, okay, back away slowly because that's not what I married, right? Well, every marriage has its problems and there are its struggles. And more important, you know, the statistics on marriage within the church and not, and a lot of people have tried to do marriage ministries because of that. And I think that's all very good. It's all important. It's all powerful. But far more important to your children is whether or not they will stay married is whether or not you stay married. The greatest statistics in divorce and marriage are that if a couple gets divorced, their children are far more likely to get divorced. And if a couple stays together, their children are far more likely to stay together. The statistics are heavily weighted in those areas. And divorce is a, it's a violent thing. The Bible says, a man who divorces his wife covers his own garment in violence. Now, I realize in the day that we live, many of you guys have been divorced. And I'm not, I'm not judging you today, okay? Uh, in, in fact, divorce is a forgivable sin just like any other's. And maybe you're divorced because circumstances in your life dictated a divorce. And there are times when divorce becomes necessary. Habitual unfaithfulness, for example. And there might be some other reasons that are included with the habitual unfaithfulness. But divorce may have been necessary. So I'm not judging you in any means. All I'm saying is that those of you who have been divorced, you know that that statement is true. There is no divorce that is clean where you say, you know what, I'm sick of this marriage, let's get divorced. Okay, cauterize, it's all clean. It's a ripping, tearing thing that happens. And before it is done, there is hatred, animosity, because you have become one. That's what the sexual union is all about. That's why God doesn't want us out there being involved with a bunch of different people, but wants us to be faithful to the person that we have married, because there's a union that is there. 
that God wants for us. Marriage is to be honorable with that. And if you can, can stand fast and make it through those difficult days, your marriage will become something that shines and your children will see that and they are more likely when problems arise to go, you know what, I'm going to remain and keep this and your grandchildren as well. It's something you can pass on to them and if your marriage is struggling right now, if you're in the middle of it right now, then really come before the Lord and seek Him. Find out what you can do to really allow that affection that you had for one another to really remain. Well, then it goes on to say the marriage bed undefiled, meaning faithfulness in marriage, and of fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. That, that we need to remain pure, the marriage bed undefiled. If you're dating or you're engaged and you're involved sexually, you're a Christian, again, I don't have to talk about the evils of fornication, right? Because as a Christian, you want to give God purity in your sexuality. The sex drive has been given to us by God, and it's strong. Someone asked me one time, why is the sex drive so strong? Well, I like a, an answer that Chuck Smith, Pastor Chuck Smith had on that question. Why is the sex drive so strong? He said, the sex drive is so strong because if it wasn't, all the men would go fishing and we'd never have babies. <laughs> so it has to be something that's strong. And I think there's a reality to that. The sex drive is strong, but he didn't give it to us so that it would control us, but that we would control it. And if you guys are engaged, then you're attracted to one another. And if you're not, if you guys are like, we're engaged, but we're never tempted sexually, probably a problem. <laughs> you know, you need to be attracted to one another. It's just part of it. And if you're attracted to one another, then you're going to be tempted. And if you're falling, well, one of the things that happens now is you're, you're full of guilt. You're full of shame. Your conscience is striking you. For the sake of your partner whom you love, who loves the Lord, you want to keep purity in your relationship as well. You know that it never is good. Once it's done, you feel the guilt and the shame that comes from it. And so the thing to do is to put Christ in the center, to pray before you go out, to read the Bible before the goodnight kiss, I like to say. And if things ever get hot and heavy and, and out of hand, just to say, what are we doing? Just ask the question. You don't need to be accusatory. What are you doing? It's your hand back, buddy. Chop it off. Just simply, what are we doing? Let's keep Christ in the center. And if you're struggling with sexual sin in general, if it's not a, a matter of dating someone or being engaged to someone and struggling with it, if you're struggling with internet pornography or there's some sexual sin that is in your life, listen, the answer is not necessarily in battling that sexual sin. The answer is in delighting yourself in the Lord. The Bible says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your hearts. You're delighting yourself in those sexual things because you think that's going to answer your problems. You think that's going to give you the desires that you have, but it doesn't. It leaves an emptiness. It leaves a hole. It leaves a desire for more. But when you delight yourself in the Lord, you have desires that change and all of a sudden you go, I don't want to do that. And isn't that a great place to be? If you've been trapped in internet pornography and you've been looking at it, to all of a sudden be so in love with Jesus that when you find yourself alone with the computer, you go, you know what? I don't want to do it. And you walk away from it, not because, you know, that's bad and people are going to die and I might get caught, but simply because of the love that you have for God, you say, I don't want to do it. And that's what happens. That's what Jesus meant when he said, if you abide in me and my word abides in you, you can ask whatever you desire and it will be done for you and delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. Now, let's go on to this week. That was last week. That's all the, uh, just uh, covering what we covered before. Now, the three that we have this week start in verse five, where it says, let your conduct be without covetousness. 
and be content with such things as you have, for he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That is a powerful verse. And everything that we need to know about living for money is there. First of all, let your conduct be without covetousness. The word content or without covetousness literally in the Greek means don't love silver. Don't love money. Jesus said, you cannot serve God and mammon at the same time. Mammon is a word that means money or stuff. You can't serve money and God at the same time. You will end up loving one and hating the other. The second thing it says here is, let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with the things that you have. It's not a matter of don't be rich. I I covered this briefly in my blog last week, and I had a couple people that were upset because they read it as me saying, you can't have money that when I was talking about not coveting, that meant you can't have money. And so they were writing saying, God's given us blessings and money. So I don't know how I worded it to make them think that, but it's not saying that you can't be rich. It's not saying that you won't be rich. It's saying to be content with what you have. And that's the thing that everybody has in common. Whether you're poor and you want more or you're, 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 uh, you know, right in the middle financially or you're wealthy. Someone asked a millionaire one time, how much money is enough money? Well, another million. A few years later, they asked him again, well, how much money is enough money now? Another million. It's always more than you have. And we know that even the wealthiest among us are not happy. They are the most miserable, in fact, aren't they? They aren't happy with their cars. They aren't happy with their houses. They aren't happy with their spouses. If I can get another car, another house, another spouse, I'll be happy. And so they end up with eight, nine, 10 divorces. And then if they have all of that in place, they have a good home, they have a good house, they have a good marriage, they're not happy with their looks. And so they get their face changed like Bruce Jenner. <laughs> I read an article, and maybe I shouldn't you know, bring him up like that, but I read an article about him last week and what happened to his face because you know that when you look at him, I can't quite put my hand on it, but something just isn't right. It's hard to improve on what God does, all right? So something just isn't right. And I read an article, and he was... It was, I think, the 90s, and, and he was divorced, just freshly divorced. He had a lot of money, and he just wasn't happy with the way he looked. Be content with such things as you have, see? There's always a sense of not being content because money can't satisfy you. And that's the last point in this verse. Look at it again. It says, let your conduct be without covetousness and be content with such things as you have, for he himself has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. You have God in your life. You have Jesus. You have everything you need. And if you are living in poverty now, he'll take care of you. He said, look at the birds of the air. They don't toil. They don't work. But your heavenly father takes care of them. But you seek first the kingdom of God and God will give you everything. Be content in your poverty. Paul said, I have learned to be abundant and I have learned to have nothing and I have learned whatever state I'm in to be content. He was a man that had both. You might say to someone that has money, that's easy for you to say, be content in your poverty. Paul had both of them and said, I learned to be content in both with abundance and with nothing. Be content if you've got money. In fact, the Bible says, tell those who are rich. There are those of you here and you would be considered rich. I don't know if you consider yourself rich, but we consider you rich. How many of you in here are rich, by the way? Raise your hand. No, I'm just kidding. I don't want to see your hands. We just want to know we want to talk to you afterwards. All right, those of you who are rich. The Bible says, tell those who are rich 
not to trust in the uncertainty of riches. Doesn't say tell them not to be rich, but don't trust in the uncertainty of riches. And then the Bible says this, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 5. If there are those teaching godliness as a means of financial gain, get away from them. We pray that the Lord is speaking to you in a personal way here at Practical Christian Living. If you'd like to hear more of Robert Furrow's teachings, visit calvarytucson.com. For our local listeners, Calvary Tucson is open and holding physical services while being mindful of social distancing guidelines. Our East Campus at Speedway and Camino Seco meets Saturdays at 6 p.m. and Sunday mornings at 9.45 a.m. Our West Campus, south of Palo Verde and I-10, meets Sunday mornings at 8.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. Our midweek service times are Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. at our East Campus and 7.15 p.m. at our West Campus. If you prefer, you can watch our service online at live.calvarytucson.com and also on our Facebook page and YouTube channel. Our online campus is available during East Campus service times. If Practical Christian Living Radio has blessed you and you'd like to donate, please visit pclaz.org. That's pclaz.org, where you can make a secure one-time donation or sign on to become a monthly partner on a reoccurring basis. Have you accepted Jesus into your life or have questions about salvation? Email us at saved at calvarytucson.com. And don't forget to follow us on social media, Instagram at Calvary Tucson and Facebook at Calvary Chapel Tucson. We want to remind our local listeners that you can watch Practical Christian Living Sunday mornings at 8.30 on KGUN 9 TV. May we walk worthy while we wait for the return of our Savior. Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living.